I haven't met you yet, I'm Nathan Chambers, one of currently the pastors at Wiser Lake. Uh, I come before you this morning with my first sermon since you have called me as your minister, and the topic is a weighty one, hypocrisy. Now, before you get big ideas, uh, Bert did not assign this text to me, so don't be <laughs> thinking that. He, he let me pick from the woes, and I picked this for myself. Uh, woe to me. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 23. If you have the Pew Bible, it is page 958, Matthew 23, we're starting at verse 13. We have to remember everything from Matthew 21 onward takes place during the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and so it is a particularly fitting text for us to reflect on this Lent season, when we prepare to celebrate Easter, when we examine ourselves As we read this text, remember the Pharisees were the religious leaders of God's people, of the Jews. They were the Bible scholars of their day. And here Jesus is not a Christian criticizing Jews, but rather Jesus is a Jew lamenting with woes the shortcomings of the leaders of God's people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we in the 20th century are no longer obedient to the Bible. We no longer read our Bibles seriously because we no longer read our Bibles against ourselves, but only for ourselves. That is to say, we read the Bible in a self-serving manner and we don't let it accuse us of our own sins. If we think these woes we're about to read about are only about the Pharisees, we're letting ourselves off the hook. But what we need to do is read the Bible seriously. We need to read the Bible against ourselves and let Jesus search our own hearts root out our own sins. Let us read then uh, Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 13 through verse 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You say... If anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, Uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. This is God's word. If you've been around the church 
for any length of time, you have either seen or heard about the ethical shortcomings of a fellow Christian or minister. Or you hear that they start to teach something that doesn't square with the gospel, that a friend who you thought was sure in the faith has strayed from it. Now, think back to this. That sinking feeling you have in your stomach, that exclamation, no way, you have got to be kidding me. That gut reaction, that disappointment, that no way, that is what woe means. Jesus is saying, woe, no way, you have got to be kidding me. Now, if you are new to the church and you haven't been around the church very long, let me warn you. God has set up a system that probably none of us ever would have picked. God saw that we are broken and sinful, and he is in the process of healing us. But he doesn't wait until we're perfect. He sends us out to tell others this good news. In Mark 5, for example, Jesus casts a legion of demons out of a man. And immediately, that very hour, he says to him, go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. He doesn't send this guy to seminary. He doesn't have him wait 20 years to make sure he's good. He immediately, this guy had demons, and an hour later he's saying, go tell people about Jesus. And that's a good image of what the church is like. We had demons, and they're cast out, and Jesus says, go tell others the good news. But the downside, no Christian is perfect. We all struggle with sins, with desires that are corrupted, And at times, this explodes in really hurtful, damaging ways. And even worse, many Christians try to cover this up with hypocrisy. They call themselves Christians. Even those who teach God's word can be hypocrites. And Jesus' response to all of this is, whoa, no way. It's somewhere between a lament and a denunciation. Alas, and watch out. In this section of our text, there's a series of woes. In this section... Jesus points out three things. He says, whoa, no way. And so on this first Sunday of Lent, we need to examine ourselves in three areas. First, we need to simply say yes or no. Simply say yes or no. In William Golding's novel, The Princess Bride, the character Inigo Montoya is trying to convince the man in black who's climbing up a cliff to let him help him. You may recall this. Inigo Montoya says, I could give you my word as a Spaniard, to which the man in black quips, no good, I've known too many Spaniards. (laughs) The truth is, it's difficult to know when someone is telling the truth. Someone's word's not enough, so we want to shake on it. A handshake's not enough, so we have a written contract. Even a signature's not enough, so we want two witnesses to the written contract. We want it notarized. Even a down payment is not enough. Because people refuse to simply say what they mean and to mean what they say. We don't know when we can trust people's words. We want people simply to say yes or no, but it's often not the case. Now here, Jesus uh, denounces the Pharisees as blind guides, saying you've set up this whole system of oaths, these fine distinctions, and yet what we need to do is simply say yes or no. The precise distinction Jesus addresses here between the gold of the temple and the stones of the temple is unknown from other historical sources, and it may even be the case that Jesus is making up a mocking example, uh, poking fun at these Pharisees' subtle distinctions. But the rabbinic discussion of the relative validity of various oaths is very extensive and fills several chapters of the Talmud, in fact. 
And here Jesus rejects this whole line of interpretation. He says the sacred things in the temple are only sacred because of the God to whom the temple belongs. The sacrifice is only sacred because of God to whom it belongs. And all of our words are ultimately accountable to God. Frankly, various oaths are only needed if a person's word alone is unreliable. What matters is telling the truth. Simply say yes or no. Here the Pharisees are blind guides, and as Jesus has earlier said, if the blind lead the blind, they're going to wind up in a pit. By these belabored qualifications of various oaths, they lead their followers away from the basic ethical ideal that we should say what we mean and mean what we say. Here Jesus cries, whoa, no way. You're leading people astray. Earlier, Jesus already gave his own view of oaths and what he thinks about it. Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes behind this whole body of legislation to the ideals that it's built on, the ideal of truth. He says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus gets behind this whole tradition of distinctions between various kinds of oaths to the ideal of simple truth. Or as Charles Dickens puts it at the end of the Christmas carol, we need to be better than our word. James, Jesus' brother, thought this was such an important point that in his letter to the church, he repeats this. He says, simply uh, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Do not make oaths by heaven or earth or by any other sort of oath. Now, it's easy for us to sit back and shake our heads at the Pharisees. Say, how could they come up with all these distinctions between an oath that's more valid and less valid? But how often have we, too, done the same thing? How often have we spoken half-truths and mistruths? How often have we hidden our true intentions or said things without really meaning them? Jesus says, woe to the people of his day, and he says, woe to us. Alas, he will not tolerate his followers being unfaithful to their word because God is not like that. God keeps his word. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here Jesus has declared the Pharisees' interpretation of oaths. Their interpretation of the Old Testament is wrong-headed. They're like blind guides. But second, Jesus says woe not just because the Pharisees have misapplied the law, but because they have not kept first things first. They have no sense of proportion of scale of the relative weight of various commands. Oh, sorry guys, I forgot something. I wrote my tithe check earlier, but I forgot to tithe on my cumin <laughs> and my dill. Uh, Bert, do we tithe by volume or by weight? I'm, I'm new to... I've got it covered here. <laughs> uh, Tom, could you grab one of the offering bags? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> Jesus draws attention to how absurd this is, that they're focused on the cumin, on this powder, tithing the right amount, and they've lost track 
of the big picture of justice, mercy, and faith. In the Old Testament, God's people are commanded to give 10% of what God has given them back to God to care for the priests. They're to give 10% of their herds and their harvest to the temple. And yet the Old Testament never specifies what do we do with herbs. We know what to do with the herds, what to do with the, uh, with the uh, harvest, but what do we do with the herbs? It's a reasonable, if relatively obscure, question. If you're an herb farmer and that's where all your money comes from, do you tithe of that? And the Pharisees reasonably conclude that, yes, give 10% of your herbs as well. So Jesus doesn't reject outright their interpretation. He's saying, yeah, that's a reasonable extension, that if you, if you have 10% of herbs and that's what you have to give to the temple, then give that to the temple. But what he says is that you've lost track of the big things. You've forgotten to keep first things first. You're so focused on making sure you can give an exact tithe that you're digging around in your spice cupboard, finding a stale old McCormick spice bottle, and you forget justice, mercy, faithfulness, the big things. We've got to keep the first things first. Now, if you're this enthusiastic about tithing that you're going through your spice cupboard, that's great, and I don't want to discourage you. The church needs generous givers. Please don't put any loose spices in the uh, offering bags. That will be a mess to deal with. But if you're this excited about giving, that's great. But remember, we've got to keep the first thing first. What does this look like? Well, Matthew gives us a bunch of examples. This is not the first time he's come in conflict with the Pharisees. It's an ongoing conflict. Back in chapter 9, Jesus was walking along, and he sees this tax collector, someone who is swindling the people of Israel named Matthew. In fact, Matthew writes the gospel we're reading. And he says to Matthew, follow me. And what do the Pharisees do? They criticize Jesus. They say, how are you associating with this known sinner? And Jesus responds there in Matthew 9. Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then in chapter 12, a little bit later, Jesus and his disciples are cutting through a field on their way to synagogue on the Sabbath. And the disciples are hungry, and they start pulling off some stalks of grain and eating it. And it's almost comical. The Pharisees pop up in the middle of the field and are there criticizing Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus responds, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And they cut through the field, and they come to the synagogue, and they come in the synagogue, and the Pharisees point out this man sitting there with a withered hand. And they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Can you imagine this poor guy sitting there in church with a withered hand trying not to draw attention to himself? And the religious leaders walk up and draw attention to him in front of everybody. And they say, well, what about this guy? What about his withered hand? They think they have Jesus in a bind. Is he going to work on the Sabbath? We can condemn him for this. Jesus says, if your sheep falls in a pit on the Sabbath, you're going to pull it out. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Jesus is keeping first things first. A man is more important than a sheep. A man is more important than 10% of your cumin and your dill. He cares for people. He keeps first things first. So when Jesus declares these woes in Matthew 23, this comes as the culmination of a long struggle that he's had with the Pharisees. If you read through Matthew, he really doesn't argue that much with the temple leaders and the chief priests. Uh, And those are the people who end up putting him to death. But the Pharisees, he's constantly arguing with because Jesus genuinely cares 
about these people. Of course, he cares about all these people he's dealing with, but he sees in these people, they love the Bible, they're trying to follow God, and yet they've lost the way, and so he's wrestling with them. So in Matthew 23, it's with sorrow in his heart and tears in his eye that Jesus says to the Pharisees, guys, you've missed the kingdom of heaven. You're so focused on rule keeping, you've lost track of justice, mercy, and faith. Guys, keep first things first. What a sad thing this is. But again, the truth is, it's not just Pharisees who forget to keep the first things first. My brother uh, works down in Bellingham, and he texted me a picture this week that he went in for lunch at a pho and bubble tea restaurant, and they have a sign up saying, our pho and bubble tea restaurant is happy to donate 10% of our daily sales to support your favorite church. This is good. I'm, I'm happy for that. We will give you a donation proof, which you can drop in the collection basket of your church on Sunday service, and at the end of the month, a, ten, a check for 10% of our total donation is mailed to your church uh, group. <laughs> now, it's great that this organization is helping support a church, but please don't bring in your bubble tea restaurant, uh, receipts and drop them in the collection bag. This is the same sort of mindset, trying to prove that somehow you have given to the kingdom of God. The bottom line is, Jesus is and will be the judge, whether we or the Pharisees like it or not. Jesus' judgment is not going to be an opportunity to show off your church attendance records, your tithing records. It's not going to be the time to pull out your bubble tea receipts and show Jesus how much you've done and how carefully you've kept the law. Jesus' judgment is going to look at how well our living reflects the Lord whom we claim to follow. We have got to keep the first things first. <coughs> in basketball, a good player is aware of what's going on in their peripheral vision off to the sides. But a poor player gets so focused on someone else's person that they're guarding that they lose track of who they're supposed to be guarding. You have to focus on the main thing and keep the peripheral things in the periphery. In the same way, we've got to focus on the central issues. There is simply no room in the church for railing at pet peeve sins, at skinny jeans, at latest fashion styles and trends, all the while forgetting this justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And yet the fact of the matter is Christians have split churches and denominations over all sorts of relatively trivial issues. And frankly, this is one of the reasons why many people outside the church don't want to have anything to do with the church. It looks like an absurd debating club whose members spend their time arguing about incomprehensible minutia. It's so easy for the church to focus on peripheral issues, on what's going on out here on the sides, that we lose fact of what's going on in front of us, that we neglect the weightier matters of the law, that we forget that it all boils down to loving God and loving our neighbors. Jesus says this losing focus and focusing on the minute things. It's like a man who goes out to dinner and he sits down to eat and he's so worried about there being a fly in his meal that he doesn't realize he's bite by bite eating an entire camel. He says it's like a man who pours his wine through a sieve trying to strain out a fruit fly that might have gotten into the wine and doesn't realize that he swallowed an entire camel. Now the, the fly and the camel are both unclean animals 
in, according to Leviticus, and Jews weren't supposed to eat either one. But if a little fly gets in your wine and you drink it, does that make you impure and God's going to judge you for that? He's saying you've missed the entire camel that you've eaten and because you're so focused on these little flies. Now, uh, I've just said the church can't rail against pet peeve sins. And this list of woes that we have before us kind of seems like a grab bag of assorted sins that Jesus condemns. How does this hold together? What's he on about? What's the big idea? Well, if we look at verse 13, right where we started, we see that Jesus addresses the main issue that ties all these woes together. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Guys, here's the third thing we need to see this morning. Phonies destroy themselves and friends. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have one of the longest lists of woes in the Old Testament prophets. The prophets also declared woes like Jesus did. And in Isaiah 5, he, he declares all these woes against Jerusalem for which they're going to be punished. He says, woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room. Woe to those who rise early to run after liquor, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Isaiah declares woe to God's people in his day for very obvious and visible sins. Woe to the greedy who buy up all the land and exploit the poor. Woe to barroom brawlers who are heroes at drinking wine. What a lovely phrase, heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink. He points the absurdity of this. In our passage, Jesus' woes are not attacking the drunkards, not attacking the rich who are exploiting the poor, but the woes he's addressing say, even though these things are not obvious and they're not as visible, just as much the hypocrite misses the kingdom of heaven. The hypocrite is just as far from the kingdom of heaven. Jesus frequently uses this term hypocrite in the Gospel of Matthew. The term literally refers to an actor or one who plays a part. He's saying the hypocrite is someone who's pretending to be something they are not. They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him. They're playing the part of keeping the law, but their heart's not in it. The central issue driving this whole series of woes is that the scribes and Pharisees have not entered the kingdom themselves. They obey the law without heart religion. And so their obedience is ostentatious evangelizing. Their obedience is finding loopholes with oaths. And their obedience has no sense of proportion in application. What a frightening thing to teach God's law to others and yet miss his kingdom yourself. And the Pharisees are not alone in running this risk. The great Puritan Richard Baxter begins his book, on pastoring and how to be a pastor by commenting that there's no sadder case than, quote, for a man who made it his very trade and calling to proclaim salvation and to help others to heaven, yet after all to be shut out himself. Alas, that we should preach so many sermons of salvation and yet fall short of it, that we preach so many sermons of Christ while we neglect him ourselves. Baxter recognized that in his day of the Puritans, there was many ministers who were in fact themselves not regenerate that they weren't 
they didn't have heart religion themselves. They were merely preaching outward obedience. And certainly it is just as easy to do this today. And so here we have to do some heart surgery, open heart surgery. It's just as delicate and perhaps even more painful than literal heart surgery. We have to discern our heart motives. If we obey God in order to get things from God, or if we obey him so we'll look godly to others, then we end up in legalism. We end up looking for loopholes in the law. We focus on minutia. We say, God, you have to give me what I asked for. I kept your law and you forgot to specify this here. I found a loophole, I've got you. Or look, I've kept this very minute thing here and so you have to give me what I want. Or we show off to others how godly we are by keeping these very fine points of the law. But phonies destroy themselves. If we're keeping the law only to get things from God or to look godly to others, we will destroy ourselves. But if we obey God to get God himself, then we obey God's law out of delight. Our reward is God himself, and we rejoice in obeying him. We obey God because we love him. And if we obey out of love, we aren't looking for loopholes to get out of obeying. And we aren't focusing on the small things. We're focusing on the big things. We love God, and we want to do the big things he's asked of us. We want to love God well and love our neighbors. Phonies don't just destroy themselves, though. They destroy their friends as well. If we're just play-acting at obeying God, if we make a show out of our obedience, two things will follow. They follow surely and every time. First, we become legalists. We become experts in finding loopholes. We become experts on trivial matters. We become legalists, and we teach others to do the same. We focus on minor things. If you're a parent, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not, you won't. But if we are only focused on the outward, we get worked up about French fries in the crack of the car seat, and we forget the big things going on, uh, even while excusing our own belligerent attitudes, perhaps, towards our children. It's so easy to focus on these little minutiae, to be a legalist. But Jesus says, woe to scribes and Pharisees who go to extreme lengths to get disciples and yet they become twice as much a child of hell. They're twice as much bound up in hypocrisy as the Pharisees themselves. Second, if we're just play-acting at obeying God, we become a legalist, but we also become judgmental. If our obedience and our goodness is all about appearances, then we are oh so fond of drawing attention to other people's shortcomings. We're so quick to judge everyone around us. We think we look better by contrast when we point out all the flaws in everyone around us. But friends, the Christian life is not about being better than other people. It's not about having the most converts. It's not about legalistic performances of the trivial fine points of the law. Here is the heart of the Christian life. It begins by seeing that apart from Jesus, you and I are no better than anyone else. We are just as lost as anyone else. We are just as much as sinners, just as much children of hell, perhaps even more so. It begins by seeing that apart from Jesus, we are nothing. We cannot simply say yes or no. We cannot keep our word. But God keeps his word. God fulfills all of his promises in Jesus. We break God's law in small ways and in huge ways. And we forget to keep the first things first. God knows you're not perfect. 
I hope that's not news to you today. God knows all things. He knows that you're not perfect. He knows that I'm not perfect. And that's why God's plan doesn't depend on us. It depends on his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was perfectly obedient in life and in death. In Jesus, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, all three come together. Jesus is the just judge who in justice judges all sin. He doesn't excuse sin. But Jesus is merciful and faithful. And so Jesus takes on himself the judgment for our sins so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. When we see this, friends, we are no longer phonies destroying ourselves and our friends. Rather, we know we are broken, sinful people who are sent out simply to tell others the good news that we were lost, but Jesus traveled across sea and land and much farther to find us, that we are broken, but in Jesus we find healing. Friends, what God wants from us is practical, godly living, that our faith would produce practical fruit. That means we simply say yes or no. We say what we mean, we mean what we say, and we keep first things first. Unlike so many religions that are filled with meaningless rituals, God calls his people to simply and profoundly speak and live out his truth just like he has done. He has been obedient because he knows that we are not. Gracious God, it overwhelms us that we hypocrites should be the object of your love that we who play at being obedient and yet break the law in so many ways should be bought at such a great price that Jesus Christ himself should give himself to buy us, to buy our freedom, to bring us healing. It is overwhelming. And so we ask that you would do heart surgery on us. We don't need superficial obedience. We don't need superficial adherence to your law. But what we need, Lord, is our hearts to be renewed once again, that your spirit would be at work in us, reforming our desires, reforming our will, so that we obey because we delight in your law. We obey because we love you, and so we love keeping your word. We know this is not easy, Lord, and it is often painful. It's a slow process, healing broken people, but we ask that you would be steadfast doing this work in our lives. We ask these things not because we are deserving. We are hypocrites. We are sinners. We ask these things in the name of your Son, uh, by which we can approach your throne, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.